from 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR, this is Lake Effect. I'm Joy Powers. Today we'll look at a bill that would make it more difficult to access police body camera footage. Then we'll tell you about a new exhibition at Myad that's showcasing the people working to improve Milwaukee. What we're trying to do is document histories of Milwaukee that are often overlooked or ignored and highlighting organizations and individuals that we've termed community guardians who are doing this day-to-day work. Plus, we'll help you plan a trip to the Hot Air Affair, a hot air balloon festival happening in Hudson, Wisconsin. When you look up in the sky and you see 10 to 20 balloons just flying around on a crisp winter morning, it is really quite magical. All of that is coming up on Lake Effect. But first, here are today's headlines. This is Lake Effect from 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. I'm Joy Powers, and thank you so much for joining us. Police accountability is necessary in any community. Over the last decade, body cameras have become one of the primary ways for the public to hold police accountable. But a new bill in the Wisconsin legislature could allow law enforcement agencies to charge for people to access these public records. At the same time, some agencies have begun refusing to name police officers accused of killing or injuring people on the job, citing Marcy's Law. Jacob Resnick has been reporting on these issues around police privacy for Wisconsin Watch, and he joins me now to talk about it. Jacob, thank you so much for being here on Lake Effect. Thank you. What is spelled out in this legislation? As we know, you know, body cam technology has really changed a lot of how we understand, you know, encounters with police, the amount of transparency. But it, in order for it to be effective, you know, from a transparency perspective, it has to be released uh, to the public in a reasonable way and a reasonable time. Different departments have different policies of how they treat body cam footage. It's not just so easy of making a records request in a lot of cases and just getting the raw footage. A lot of agencies will take some time and redact it, citing statutes protecting victim privacy and so forth. Um, so that can really delay, you know, as a news reporter, that can delay the time in which to get the, the, the body cam footage, which can help uh, inform the reporting. There is legislation now pending that would allow police agencies to charge uh, money for the time it takes to edit the footage and redact footage for these privacy concerns. And there are concerns you know, from reporters like myself that one, that would slow down the process of releasing uh, the footage. You know, we, often we want as minimal editing as, as possible. And also it could make it prohibitively expensive, not only for news organizations, but also ordinary members of the public to access uh, what we believe are public records. Yeah. Uh, Republicans put forward uh, this bill in the legislature. Have they explained how they square this with the goal of keeping police accountable? To my knowledge, this bill hasn't had a hearing yet. All I looked at and saw was who was backing the bill, and it seemed to have a lot of support from law enforcement, professional law enforcement agencies themselves. One of the concerns about it is it's very vague on on the kind of costs that would be charged. It just says uh, it would authorize law enforcement and corrections agencies to charge a fee for the actual necessary indirect cost for redacting. And so that is a cumbersome process. 
And if they're charging $35 an hour, $50 an hour, whatever, I mean, it adds up pretty quickly. And so it could be hundreds of dollars for just one short incident. In the course of my reporting, I had requested body cam footage from the Oshkosh Police Department for a pair of non-fatal shootings where they had released very little information and still have not released the names of the officers involved. In one of the incidences, they redacted it so heavily you couldn't even see the person who had been shot. Basically, it was an exercise of futility because if you can't see what the officer had perceived to be the threat, what use is that body cam footage? Now, we pushed back to the police department and got the district attorney involved, and they did release a second version that was less edited where you could see more of the actual encounter. Now, had this bill been in effect, would we have had to pay twice, for example? Uh, that would have been hundreds and hundreds of dollars potentially to get footage from, you know, one incident in one city in Wisconsin. And, you know, as news organizations are really, really stretched, I think we would see a lot less accountability for police encounters. So the other part of this is law enforcement agencies have been shielding the identities of officers who kill or seriously injure people on the job. Um, During the investigation, uh, which uh, we we talked about a bit before the interview, but also after, and uh, they have released the names of civilians in these situations, how have they justified uh, what to me seems like a lack of transparency? Right. Well, there was these two non-fatal shootings in Oshkosh in 2023, and they quickly released the names of the the men who were shot, but the officers involved were not, the names were not released. And I found that curious. So, you know, I pushed back a little bit and asked the police department and then ultimately the district attorney. And it turns out they were citing Marcy's law, which is the constitutional amendment passed by voters in 2020 that expands uh, victim rights. Now, what was novel about this is they were expanding the definition of victim to include the police officers that fired their weapons on those days. And so that meant in, even in court documents, the names were being withheld indefinitely. Now, this is something that's happened in other states that have similar statutes from the Marcy's Law uh, Amendment. Um, but this was kind of a first thing we ever saw in Wisconsin because, you know, just in the next county over, there had been fatal shootings in the the names of the officer was released, you know, the following day. And that generally is the practice in Wisconsin. You know, after 24 hours, 48 hours, the names of the officers are released. Uh, and if they're not released immediately, eventually when the investigative file is released after, you know, the state division of criminal investigation or the other law enforcement agency that by law has to conduct its outside review, the names come out. But not in Oshkosh, not in Winnebago County. The district attorney there has been saying, they're entitled to victim privacy. And that just is something that uh, has been tested in courts in other states and ultimately happened in Florida. Late last year, the Supreme Court rejected that argument and said that some Tampa police officers could not have their names shielded over privacy protections. And so it's it's still untested in the courts in Wisconsin. As a news reporter, I see that as a worrying trend to assert victim privacy protections for officers of the state to have blanket anonymity, even when they use deadly force in a public setting under the official color of law. Yeah. It seems to be part of a a larger trend of how law enforcement agencies 
are interpreting Marcy's Law in a, a variety of unique ways. What is kind of the concern there? What is the concern as we look to the future of uh, having this law in our state, which is still pretty new? Yeah, it's a complicated law, and there are a lot of attorneys who could give a lot better analysis than I ever could. But one attorney that I spoke to said to me, privacy does not equate to anonymity. You know, and it's not an anonymity. You know, there are some reasonable protections you can uh, expect, you know, not having a person's home address, for example, uh, published or phone number, things like that. But actual blanket anonymity, that is really far reaching. Uh, so far, the attorney general in Wisconsin has given some guidance but has really put the onus on local agencies to figure it out, to do their own balancing tests. And so what we're seeing is kind of a patchwork of standards. Some counties are saying, well, we'll do what we've always done. We'll release the names after you know we complete the investigation or within a reasonable amount of time. But, or as, as we see in Winnebago County, the doing blanket withholding of the officers' names. There was another fatal shooting in Winnebago County, although ironically it didn't involve Winnebago County law enforcement. It was from law enforcement from the next county over as part of this, um, as a task force called the Lake Winnebago Area Metropolitan Enforcement Group. And it's a task force of police officers from different agencies. Uh, they were trying to uh, apprehend a fugitive and they ended up fatally shooting him in a gas station convenience store out in, in Nina uh, in Winnebago County. Now, the names of the two officers who reportedly fired the fatal uh, shots, those names have not been released. Now, curiously, the uh, Outagamie County Sheriff's Office and the Appleton Police Department, where the officers were employed, did not cite Marcy's Law. Now, they used a different rationale. Their rationales were one is an officer who works undercover, and they didn't want to have their identity revealed. And the other said that there had been unspecified threats to their officer, and they weren't going to release the name. And then there was another fatal shooting up in, I think, Barron County, where there was another, they used the same rationale, where there was unspecified threats to the officer to resist uh, releasing their name. Now, I looked up the guidance from the attorney general for when releasing records in what they call officer-involved death investigations, and they cite Supreme Court decisions from just recent decades, and where they say blank, you know, you, you can't have blanket withholding for unspecified threats. The Supreme Court's held that, you know, nearly all public officials, due to their profiles as agents of the state, had the potential to incur the wrath of disgruntled members of the public and may be expected to face heightened public scrutiny. That is simply the nature of public employment. So, you know, the, the state Supreme Court has rejected, you know, sweeping general assertions of, of you know, withholding identity because of public safety concerns. Unfortunately, there's no rule, any clock ticking. Every time I check in with these law enforcement agencies and say, have you closed your investigation? Is there still this, this threat to the officer? They've told us, yep, it's still ongoing. And so in effect, they're indefinitely withholding uh, the identities of the officers who fire, fired the fatal shots. Justice delayed in some ways, or transparency at least delayed. All right. Well, Jacob, thank you so much for joining us here on Lake Effect, sharing your work. And uh, I look forward to seeing what happens in these situations. Well, thank you very much, Joy. I think it's just incumbent for local reporters to keep asking these questions. And uh, there aren't a lot of local reporters anymore, but the ones that are have to keep putting the pressure on for law enforcement agencies to be transparent. Jacob Resnick is an investigative reporter for Wisconsin Watch. We'll turn now to Jim Palmer, 
the executive director for the Wisconsin Professional Police Association, to explore how law enforcement views issues of police privacy. The association represents the majority of police officers in the state of Wisconsin, and it's the state's largest law enforcement group. The uh, Wisconsin Professional Police Association, or WPPA, currently represents more than 11,000 officers uh, throughout the state of Wisconsin. We are the state's largest law enforcement group. Uh, more than 11,000 officers we represent from over 300 local association affiliates. There are some exceptions, such as the uh, City of Milwaukee Police Department and a few others, but we represent the vast majority of officers serving our communities across the state. And we represent them in a wide variety of, uh, uh, of circumstances. We bargain their contracts, we enforce those contracts, uh, we lobby for uh, law enforcement uh, amongst uh, lawmakers at the state capitol, and we also represent officers uh, if they're facing disciplinary scrutiny or uh, in, in the case of uh, any time they're involved in a critical incident, such as an officer-involved shooting. And so that's something, you know, year in and year out, given the fact that we do uh, represent uh, the vast majority of officers, we tend to represent most of the officers. Uh, they're involved in, in critical incidents, such as officer-involved shootings, on, on an annual basis. So we're actually talking uh, in light of a piece from Wisconsin Watch that looked at a few different things involving police privacy. Uh, there have been law enforcement agencies that have refused to name officers suspected of killing or seriously injuring people on the job. Now, what does your organization think of that kind of tactic? I think we assume that if an officer is suspected of being involved with either killing someone or seriously injuring them, that they will be, you know, named. But that isn't always happening now. Well, absolutely. As the state's largest law enforcement group, we for many years, I really believe, have led the way to try and uh, make law enforcement events such as officer-involved shootings more transparent. Uh, we believe transparency and accountability, uh, it, it helps uh, uh, advance the credibility of our officers across the state, and it's good for not only public safety, but officer safety as well. And we've lobbied on a wide variety of, of, of issues to, to help strengthen that. With regard to Marcy's Law, I mean, it's something that the, the voters uh, elected to amend the state constitution to provide victims with some more rights with regard to their privacy. And there are times when law enforcement officers, despite the fact that they may have had to use a utilized force in the line of duty, and, and uh, they are public public officials, so to speak, uh, that they are also victims themselves. And there are times in our group uh, when it is appropriate for their names, the name of an officer that's been involved in, in something like an officer-involved shooting, for, for that not to be immediate, immediately released. There may be uh, safety concerns. And I think, again, that it's also true that many times officers are reacting to situations in, in which they themselves are victims because they have been attacked. And so I, I think it's clear uh, under the law that, you know, authorities cannot create a bright line rule to withhold all, you know, victim records and information. Um, but there are times when it is absolutely appropriate and it really has to be evaluated uh, by local law enforcement agencies on a case by case basis. Now, when Marcy's law has been challenged in court in other states, it hasn't been challenged in court yet in the state of Wisconsin, uh, but courts have seemingly not found uh, specifically, I'm, I'm talking about a, a court in Florida that found police officers were not victims, could not have their names shielded in these situations. Would you be open to seeing these challenges play out in Wisconsin courts? Well, I don't know if we'd be open to it or not. I think it's important for each agency and each governmental authority to, 
you know, use their best judgment and 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 not try to establish or promote a, a bright line rule because I think it's pretty clear that uh, under Wisconsin's really strong public records law that you know such a bright line rule that you know the names of officers in all cases you know shouldn't be released is, is unlawful. But I think there are cases uh, again citing you know numerous examples and experiences that we've had over the years where officers have have, have faced threats their safety and security and that of their families has, has been an issue. Uh, and in, the, in those cases where um, they have been themselves attacked and had to utilize force in response to those attacks, um, I, I think there are cases when it's appropriate. And so really, um, if the law is challenged, we'll see where that goes. But I, I think it's more important that you know, agencies uh, and governmental authorities utilize their best judgment, recognize that not all, you know, not, not all cases can be treated in one singular fashion. It's an interesting thing to consider. I think, of course, people are concerned about anyone's safety, regardless of their job. But part of the issue I think we run into here is uh, whether or not the public deserves to know when the people tasked with protecting them are suspected of killing or injuring a member of the public like themselves. How do you internally balance what you see as the rights of law enforcement and the right to the public uh, to feel safe? Well, I think it is a, a balancing act uh, you know, that has to be done on an individual basis. I think it's important to recognize that officers, simply because you know, they put on a badge, they don't compromise or lose the rights of any other ordinary citizen under certain circumstances. And and that is where they, they are attacked and they are the, the, the victims of crimes themselves to the extent there are you know, personal safety uh, issues uh, that are, are at issue, uh, you know, then, then it may well be appropriate that in those limited circumstances, uh, the names of officers uh, be withheld for some period of time. Uh, having said that, I think more often than not, uh, and I think that's what we've seen in the last few years since Marcy's law has been enacted, more often than not, the, the officers' names are released in, in a fairly you know, short amount of time. And I think that's appropriate, given the authority with which officers are entrusted to utilize uh, you know, to a, the community's benefit. Now, this is kind of a, a broader question. We're, we're, we're switching topics here to body cameras. In general, what does your organization think uh, of the use of body cameras for law enforcement and uh, the utility of it? Well, for many years, uh, more than a decade now, our, our organization has been a very strong proponent of body-worn cameras. I can tell you, having personally represented numerous officers uh, throughout Wisconsin in, in critical incidents such as officer-involved shootings, any time, in my experience, there was video evidence of one variety or another, it was helpful. It may not answer you know, every question uh, that may come about as a result of that incident, but it is helpful. And I think that is We've seen uh, more and more agencies throughout the state adopt them. I think a majority of, of law enforcement agencies in Wisconsin are now utilizing body-worn cameras, but there are still some that aren't, and some notable ones. We think that uh, more transparency in this regard is helpful, uh, and I think the public's expectation is that uh, at some point the body-worn camera video evidence is, is going to be publicly available, and, and we, we support that. We think it's important for the community to have their questions answered. Uh, and to have a, a clear sense of, of what an officer was experiencing at the time they had utilized force in the line of duty. Now, there's a bill that could make it prohibitively expensive for the public to access the footage taken from body cameras. Uh, do you, does your organization think it's appropriate for law enforcement agencies to charge people to view what are public documents? 
Well, I think, you know, it, it's uh, our, our public records law in Wisconsin, as I mentioned earlier, is uh, among the strongest in the nation. And I think that's a good thing. We celebrate that. In fact, we've worked tirelessly over the last several years to even strengthen it. For example, a few years ago, we worked with, uh, you know, the broadcasters and some of the media interest groups in, in coming up with some succinct state laws on retention periods, because, you know, we recognize that uh, there should be some uniform rules uh, so that, you know, agencies know how long they have to hang on to this stuff and they can better evaluate the cost associated with maintaining the body-worn camera data. The fact of the matter is that as more agencies have adopted body-worn cameras and that technology has become more and more prevalent, obviously, perhaps not surprisingly, the number of requests that agencies are receiving for body-worn camera video has increased exponentially. And there are costs associated with that. Right now, as many people, I think, well know, you know, the staffing of law enforcement agencies throughout the state is at something like a 15-year low. Now, agencies are stretched exceedingly thin, and, and it's to the point where there are some agencies that have had to, uh, you know, hire people for the sole purpose of fulfilling these, these requests. And there, so there are some extraordinary costs associated with fulfilling public records requests when it comes to body-worn camera uh, video uh, evidence. I, I think it's important for agencies to be able to recoup some of that. Uh, and that's what this legislation would do. I know some people have said that they believe it will be prohibitive. Right now, agencies are eating that cost. And, you know, it, it's, it's really taking its toll on agencies throughout the state. So I think if that continues, my concern is, as someone who works for an organization that supports transparency, not only transparency, but body-worn cameras, is that if the cost associated with fulfilling those public records requests related to body-worn camera video, it become too excessive. I think we're going to see agencies, I'm afraid that we're going to see agencies either scale back their programs or perhaps those that that have not yet initiated a body-worn camera program uh, shy away from it because they're concerned about those costs. I think this allows, uh, this legislation that you referenced allows agencies to recoup the actual costs that are associated with redacting video evidence. So I, I don't view this legislation as being in opposition to transparency. In fact, I think it, it'll do more to continue the uh, growth of body-worn camera technology here in the state of Wisconsin. I mean, we've seen these kinds of rules abused by a lot of public organizations in the past, right? So they'll say it costs so much to do however amount of work it is. They make these documents then cost quite a lot of money, making it impossible for people in the public to access them in any meaningful way. Uh, so I, I think the ability to abuse this is pretty apparent. Beyond that, it, it does feel a little odd as, as a taxpayer being told, okay, well, you're paying for police officers and you're paying for them to have body cameras and you're paying for them to have, you know, the documents made by that. And these are public documents, but now you need to pay for that too. It's a little hard to square. You're suggesting it seems counterintuitive. Yes. Um, yeah, yeah and, I, and I understand that. I, I think, again, you know, the nice thing about technology, and we've already seen this with the, insofar as body-worn camera technology goes, as technology gets updated, the costs uh, decrease with that. And so, I, in fact, I really believe that, you know, some of the opposition as it relates to this legislation really is much ado about nothing. I, I, I agree that it should not be abused, but I think as we continue to see the growth and prevalence of body-worn camera technology throughout the state, I think it is going to become easier and less expensive over time uh, to fulfill those requests than it is currently today. Um, and so I, I, I don't think that it is as prohibitive. This legislation will be as prohibitive as some people 
would uh, suggest. But again, I, I uh, understand that uh, people are sensitive about anything that looks like it could create obstacles towards transparency, and that's not something that our organization supports, and certainly it should not be abused. All right. Well, Jim, thank you so much for joining us here on Lake Effect and sharing your work. Thank you. Jim Palmer is the executive director for the Wisconsin Professional Police Association. We want to hear from you as we gear up to cover local elections and the presidential election in November. You can have a say in our 2024 election coverage by filling out our election survey. You can find a link at wuwm.com. What you tell us will help inform the stories you hear on Lake Effect and WUWM. In about 15 minutes, we'll bring you the latest Wandering Wisconsin, where we'll help you plan a trip to Hudson, Wisconsin, for an event that draws crowds of hot air balloon enthusiasts, even in frigid temperatures. But first, we'll learn about a new exhibition at Myad that's highlighting Milwaukee's community guardians. That's coming up next on Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM. Milwaukee's NPR. You're listening to Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM. I'm Joy Powers. There's a new exhibition at the Milwaukee Institute of Art and Design that focuses on the people and organizations that work to improve the city. It's called Growing Resistance, and it highlights community guardians, people who are often overlooked but work tirelessly to improve Milwaukee's neighborhoods and the lives of residents. WUWM's Susan Benz visited the Myed Brooks Stevens Gallery and spoke with two of the show's curators, Helen Bullard and Michael Carrier. What we're trying to do is document histories of Milwaukee that are often overlooked or ignored and highlighting organizations and individuals that we've we've termed community guardians who are doing this day-to-day work and often not getting the credit for that work. And so we really do try to focus on those stories, but we also want to ground those stories in the environmental context from which they emerge and sort of the issues that they're trying to address. And so we try to do this balance of sort of a historical look at Milwaukee, but very much rooted in the contemporary world of organizations and individuals really doing this important work. So on that idea of context, the sort of first section of the exhibition is the roots of resistance. And we try to lay out exactly sort of what the environments that the the contemporary activists are trying to address. And so we look at things like highway construction and other urban renewal legacies. We look at the impact of deindustrialization. We look at the impact of police brutality on certain communities. And then we also sort of try to show that these histories into the, onto themselves aren't over yet. And so the last image of this first section, if you will, is a photograph of a home owned by an out-of-state property holder and how these firms are essentially taking advantage of some of these earlier histories by purchasing these homes and then essentially extracting as much profit as possible very quickly and then allowing them to rot. And so trying to, again, set the stage for the work that's being done today. So, Michael, how do you how do you distill that? I mean, that that's a lot of 
history, a lot of important history, a lot, as you said, that still continues today. How do you how do you do that? How do you achieve well, I mean, that? I mean, I think some of it is is the reason we actually start with a poem by Dasha Kelly, Kelly Hamilton that kind of does that distillation for us. I think so. One of the nice things about this exhibition is we allow artists to to tell those stories, and often those artists are a part of the efforts we're trying to document. And so here you hear Dasha's voice in a really helpful way to lay out what this means. So tell us about Dasha for those who don't know Dasha. Um, amazing Milwaukee-based poet, um, and we, yeah, we're incredibly thankful that we are able to have a piece of hers in this exhibition. So tell me, what was the first step into this project? So there's four of us who are primary curators of the show. There's Mike and I, also Simone Farrow um, from Dance and uh, she's also a choreographer from UWM. And then Dr. Arijit Sen, also from UWM, architecture, urban planning, urban studies and history. So the four of us have worked together in different capacities over the years. Often we're working with similar communities in the city, often in mostly the north side, northwest side. So. Well, we had conversations and just felt like it would be a really great opportunity to kind of come together and be able to facilitate um, being able to share these stories more and giving some kind of a platform um, that can really start as a, you know, a base for going forward. So, you know, this is a big show, but we're hoping that we will take um, strands of this very complex story forward and be able to focus in on these smaller pieces. I see some seeds. Throughout the whole show, actually, there's points of interaction with the people who come and see the show. We really want people to be involved and feel like they're part of this and that they're not just an observer. Um, so one of the things that we're doing is we set up this seed exchange where we have gathered seeds or worked with Bloom MKE, Anton's Garden, and VGI, Victory Garden Initiative, and in exchange for setting a small intention for care in the community. So you can see there's a couple here already. One says, learn more about the amazing things happening in Milwaukee. Another says grow more, give more, and then so in exchange for that you can take some seeds. And then we have these great postcards that one of my students made. We thought, you know, people might like to write messages to the guardians and we can deliver them. So here we are in Adams Garden Park. Yeah. So one of, at least for me, one of the best examples of an organization that is wrestling with some of the histories laid out in the first section, section of the exhibition is Adams Garden Park, which is this environmental hub space in the Lindsay Heights neighborhood that provides room for for-profit and non-profit organizations working on environment, environmental sustainability, uh, co-founded by Sharon and Larry Adams, who previously had co-founded Walnut Way Conservation Corps. And so what we've tried to do with this room is really recreate, in a sense, what they are trying to do with the building. And so we have some of the pieces that actually hang in Adams Garden Park but also that came out of programming that Adams Garden Park had done. Um, and that can be something like a community quilt, which was done in a partnership with artists working in education with the artist Rosie Petrie, where Rosie worked with young people from the neighborhood on this quilt making project with the idea that this quilt would hang in Adams Garden Park. You also see a rain chain that was done by Glenn Williams. Uh, there are a series of these rain chains hanging in front of Adams Garden Park meant to collect water. The water goes into a cistern. That water then uh, is used for the landscaping of Adams Garden Park. Uh, the rain chain features silhouettes of people interviewed through an oral history project that was done during the pandemic with, again, young people from the Lindsay Heights neighborhood. And so one of the things we're trying to do here is 
obviously highlight some of the environmental sustainability work that Adams Garden Park is doing, but also Sharon and Larry are really interested in what else you need to sustain in a neighborhood, or what else does sustainability mean? And so they are really committed to documenting the history of the community and documenting the histories of the residents of the neighborhood. That's what you see in this room. So this is a really interesting exhibition because it's very different from shows that we usually have at Myad. It, it has, uh, I mean, there are some very well-known professional artists in this show. There's also a lot of people that would never have called themselves artists before. There's also student work, social practitioners, just organization leaders and block leaders. So there's a real kind of mixture of people. And we, as Mike said, we kind of think of them as um, community guardians, all of them. Um, and they together help to tell these stories that are more representative. Um, so we have some student work in this show. We have people from classes from up between the four of us who have been making work over a period of time that feed into this show. So right behind you as we're in Adams Garden Park, Milwaukee Water Commons um, is one of the organizations that's housed in Adams Garden Park. So we have a couple of pieces um, that show work from, from the Melanie Arians is the artist in residence at um, the Water Commons. And this portrait of Brenda Coley, who's the co-director of Adams Garden Park, was made by one of my students. Actually for um, the, the project I mentioned before, the LGBTQ um, history project called House of History. Um, Brenda is also involved in that and as fe was featured as one of the uh, leaders in that project. So it's nice how these projects kind of come and intersect. And you know, when you talk about environmental history, um, how do you frame that? Because it's really so expansive and you can keep pulling at that thread, right? Part of what you're looking at, I think, is getting more of our community, the broader community, in to experience this, to experience more of our community. How do you tackle that? What I really like about this show is it wasn't like the four of us decided, hey, there's really cool stuff happening, let's document it. Um, all of us have been involved in this work, in some cases, for 10, 15, 20 years. And so I, I think the first step has been establishing those relationships, where we're able to go to someone like Evelyn Terry, whose work is here, and say, Evelyn, we see you as an important part of the community and the story, we want to have you in the show. And have her say, that would be great. And so so I, I think for me that first step has been establishing those relationships and that is not something that happens overnight. So this, this is a piece that Evelyn based off of a quote from Fred Hampton. And so Fred Hampton was the murdered Black Panther leader in Chicago who essentially was trying to bring together a number of different organizations, a number of different types of people to challenge the authorities of Chicago at the time. And so each panel, if you will, is meant to represent a certain group that, that Fred was hoping to pull together. And so it's this expansive view of activism, and it, it's one that, I mean, I think Evelyn captures in this really captivating way. So there's five pieces that Evelyn has made and um, allowed us to use for the show um, based off of that quote uh, that, that's focused around um, black power, brown power, red power, yellow power. Um, and white power. Um, I think Evelyn added the red, red power piece, um, but these pieces are made with found objects, so they're, they're really beautiful, beads, jewelry, um, all kinds of uh, different types of paint glitter. Um, and yeah, I think, I think it's, really, it's really an interesting way to kind of draw focus to something that is, you know, you're drawn towards it because it's beautiful, right? And then you learn about it and it's um, just a different way that a creative medium can kind of draw you into a story and help to share those voices. We had talked earlier, Michael, about 
the broad term sustainability and urban gardens and the evolution of Victory Garden Initiative. Right. That's all woven in here too, one way or the other. Yeah, yeah, and even, I mean, we have a section on True School, and the exhibition ends with a look at the contemporary work of Voces de la Frontera. And so this idea of trying to bring in voices that aren't often a part of an exhibition like this, but also aren't often in conversation with one another. And so one of the things we've been really trying to do is, at least for me personally, thinking about what makes a city sustainable. And in some cases, as Sharon and Larry taught me, that's making sure that stories are listened to and making sure that you are trying to document those stories. And so you do see through the community gardening, the urban farming, the attempts to challenge housing discrimination, you see these real-time engagements with the built environment that have undoubtedly environmental consequences. At the same time, though, this idea of making sure we document the stories behind those efforts. Throughout the months, you have a series of programs, some Zoom, some in person, mm -hmm. a community story circle when you get into March. What are your hopes for that? Yeah, I think because the work in this show and the people involved in this show and hopefully the people who will visit the show and become engaged with the programming are from so many different backgrounds and so many different parts of the community. Um, I'm, you know, I hope that it can provoke different conversations and kind of help to feed into not only classes that have been taught in, in the schools, but also conversations that happen in the community. Um, the last event that we're um, running for this, uh, associated with this, is on March 2nd, which is the last day of the show at Milwaukee Public Library. Um, called What's Next, a community story circle, um, and we're hoping to have a conversation there about, you know, what does a community feel that should happen next? Like, where should we go with this? Because there are so many places, you know, you can see how much is in the show and how many threads of stories are interwoven. Which pieces should we take and what, what would they like to happen? So we're kind of throwing it open to the public as well, which, um, you know, is a really important part of this, right? We don't see this as our show, we see this as a community show. Bullard is a curator for the Growing Resistance exhibition, and they teach service learning and writing at the Milwaukee Institute of Art and Design. Michael Carrier is also a curator and a professor of history at the Milwaukee School of Engineering. They spoke with WUWM's environmental reporter Susan Benz. The exhibition is open now through March 2nd. Coming up, we'll tell you about the Hot Air Affair, a hot air balloon festival happening in Hudson, Wisconsin. We'll help you plan a trip there next on Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM. I'm Joy Powers. There's an opportunity to see dozens of hot air balloons rise into the sky in unison next month in Hudson, Wisconsin. It's called the Hot Air Affair, an annual tradition that attracts balloonists and spectators from around the state. 
The main event is a mass ascension of the unique and colorful balloons. But you've got to be a morning person to see it, and you've got to be willing to spend some time out in the cold. To learn about the hot air affair and help you plan a trip for it, Lake Effect's Becky Mortensen speaks with Mary Claire Olson Potter with the Hudson Area Chamber of Commerce and Tourism Bureau. And Amanda Weibel with Travel Wisconsin. Mary Claire and Amanda, welcome to Lake Effect. Thank you for joining me for our very first Wandering Wisconsin of 2024. Glad to be here. Thanks for the invitation. Mary Claire, to start off, for those who may not have heard of or attended the Hot Air Affair, can you just describe what this event is and what it involves? Yes, so this is the 35th annual Hudson Hot Air Fair event, and the primary reason that folks come to this event, it's the largest upper Midwest winter ballooning event. So visitors can see balloons in the Torchlight Parade on Friday and at Mass Ascensions on Saturday and Sunday morning, and then also Saturday night is a night moon glow, which highlight 30-plus balloons glowing in the dark like a field of Chinese lanterns. Okay, we'll get into a little bit more of each of those things, but we were talking before we started recording that it's usually pretty cold when this is going on. It's taking place <laughs> in early February, and weather is obviously a pretty important factor here. So what conditions are needed to make sure the balloons can inflate and have a safe flight? Yes, and you know, that's it's interesting. So you really need zero to low wind. That is the biggest component for getting the balloons to launch. So very, very low wind. That's the factor that they monitor. And this is a spectator-focused event, right? So people going to this festival should expect to see the balloons but not ride in them. Is that right? That is correct. It is a total spectator event. Um, there are a lot of balloon options at other times of the year, more in the summer and spring for balloons in the St. Croix Valley area. But this one, as you said, is a spectator-focused event. And this isn't just a group of traditionally shaped balloons. I was reading you've had a dinosaur, you've had a fish. Can you talk about the variety of balloons that people will be able to see? They have some great um, balloons that come this year. The theme is rocking with the coldies. And so the Piano Man balloon is the main feature balloon. But you're right, um, dinosaurs, there have been, um, there's a Madame Blueberry, which is like all sorts of different colors of blue. And so it's really fun to see the different balloon featured uh, throughout the event. And there's a mass ascension, that's what you called it, right? Yes, a mass ascension. So Saturday and Sunday morning, pending weather conditions, um, you can have anywhere from up to 25 to 30 balloons just kind of rise and take off um, in the early morning. You want to be an early riser for this event because they would launch about seven o'clock on that day. Um, and if they aren't able to launch in the morning, they try to launch that Saturday afternoon around three. When I was looking over the website for the Hot Air Affair, I found a list of fun facts about the festival, including things like the coldest temperature a balloon has ever flown at the festival, and that there are not just one, but several husband and wife pilot teams. So, Mary Claire, can you share your favorite fun fact about the festival? Maybe something people don't know about it. You know, what I love about the Hudson Hot Air Affair is that there is something for everyone that weekend. And so it kicks off with a parade on Friday night, but there's a market and um, pancake breakfast on Saturday. 
They have a really fun um, schmooze boarding contest. So there's really something for everyone throughout the weekend. And it's a great event just to bring um, the Hudson community and visitors alike together. But I think my, what I always remember about this event is I'm a judge for the Friday night parade and it usually is the coldest night of the year. <laughs> so make sure to dress warm, bring the hat and gloves, right? Yes, but we have plenty of restaurants uh, for you to pop in and get a warm cocoa and a in a warm meal to keep you keep you warm throughout the weekend. And I understand the holidays have not quite ended there in Hudson. You've got a light display that people can check out. Yes, so we kick off uh, Santa lights up Lakefront Park, which is right along the Saint Croix River. And this year we have fifty thousand lights um, up in the park. We have a tree in the band shell that has 3,000 lights alone. And so they are on every morning from 5 to 7 and then every night from 5 to midnight. And so we keep them on specifically through the hot air fair weekend. So we celebrate the holidays right through February 9th, right here in Hudson. But it's a beautiful display that you can drive by, you can walk through, grab a cup of cocoa. And it's a lot of great uh, photo opportunities within those trees with all those lights. And as Mary Claire, you said, there are lots of other things to do in the Hudson area, places people could go to warm up when they're not taking in the festival. Amanda, can you share a few things people could do on a trip to the Hudson area? Absolutely, Becky. One suggestion to check out is the Fifth Center for the Arts. It's free to visit and it's open seven days a week. And they have six different galleries featuring artwork from regional artists. So a couple of the exhibits that are currently on display include exploring women in World War II. There's a painting technique that uses wax to craft a uniquely textured artwork. And there's this group exhibit that uses natural materials to create an immersive environment. So lots of great artwork to check out. Another wonderful highlight of Hudson is it's downtown. You're going to want to stroll 2nd Street for that quintessential downtown charm. It's filled with historic brick buildings and locally owned shops. So you can pop into stores like the 715, which sells a mix of urban and rustic goods like home decor, or the Bee's Knees, which is a really great gift shop where you can pick up something special for a loved one. And I'm guessing you're going to find a thing or two for yourself to take home to remember your trip to. People are traveling from all over to attend. So where are a few places people could check out to stay for this festival? If you're looking for a unique stay, I recommend checking out some of the Airbnbs available in Hudson. You're going to find several that are right there in the downtown area, so really convenient. And you'll find all different styles. Some might have some stylish mid-century furniture. Others might have amenities like hot tubs and home gyms. And they'll also accommodate travel parties of all sizes, whether you're looking for a cozy cottage that's perfect for a couple or a lakeside home that could fit up to nine people. There are also plenty of hotel options in Hudson. For example, the Best Western Plus was just recently renovated. So you're going to find modern, comfortable rooms. It also has a pool and a hot tub. So that's really great for folks who are looking to unwind after a day of enjoying the hot air affair. And after a day of balloons or art or parades or shopping, where are some places people could sit down for a hot meal? I suggest heading to Pier 51. They have a really great wintertime igloo experience. So you can actually eat and drink comfortably outdoors in this beautiful covered dome. You are going to want to reserve your igloo experience soon, though, because they do book up fast. 
But whether or not you eat indoors or outdoors, Pier 500, the food is really going to leave you impressed. They're serving up a chef-driven menu with a fresh spin on dishes like the smoked Gouda nachos, or I highly recommend the house-marinated maple apple pork chop. I have tried to recreate that recipe at home, and I think I'm just going to have to go back and order it again. Another great option for Latin-inspired cuisine is Pedro's Del Este. They specialize in craft cocktails and small plates with big flavor, and they have tapas dishes that have influences from Spanish, Cuban, and Latin cooking. So you might want to consider the traditional Spanish meatballs, which are served with a tomato saffron sauce or the goat cheese croquettes. And it's just a really great spot to relax with friends and family over some great food. Also, too, as you think about winter, Pedro's del Este and San Pedro also have pergolas. So we offer a, a, you know, a couple of places where you can do the igloo and the outdoor dining, which, um, as we all know, really kind of came out of the whole COVID thing, but it's been something that they've all stayed with, which has made it really fun. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So to me, there's something kind of magical, romantic, maybe about hot air balloons. Mary Claire and Amanda, can you each talk about kind of the feelings people might have while taking in this festival? Mary Claire, I'll have you go first. No, I think the hot air balloons are so unique. And there's another uh, piece that instead of just kind of watching the balloons crew from a distance, you can also get in the action by attending the crew school um, during the hot air fair. Well, they the Saturday afternoon's lesson will include how do you inflate a balloon? How do you chase a balloon? And how do you pick up the balloon once it's landed? So I think what's so magical about this is that not only do you get to see all the balloons, but you can learn about the balloons and how they do what they do. And when you look up in the sky and you see 10 to 20 balloons just flying around on a crisp winter morning, it is really quite magical. I love how the variety of activities that Mary Claire spoke to that really show that the hot air affair it showcases Wisconsin's celebratory spirit. And that isn't just limited to one season here in Wisconsin. We find reasons to come together year round to marvel at new experiences and make unforgettable memories. And you are certainly going to leave the hot air affair with those amazing memories. And you can find all kinds of ideas to start your winter getaway at TravelWisconsin.com. You can also visit the Hudson Chamber uh, website and get all of the details for all the different activities happening for the Hot Air Fair weekend, all of the fishing contests and so much. There's just so many things happening, um, which makes it just a great Wisconsin weekend. All right. Well, Mary Claire and Amanda, thank you so much for joining me for Wandering Wisconsin. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Mary Claire Olson Potter is the president of the Hudson Area Chamber of Commerce and Tourism Bureau. Amanda Weibel is the communications officer for Travel Wisconsin. They spoke with Lake Effects Becky Mortensen about the Hot Air Affair, which is happening in Hudson February 2nd through the 4th. You can find more information at wuwm.com. And check out our past Wandering Wisconsin conversations while you're there. And Wandering Wisconsin wraps up today's show. Thank you so much for being here with us. I'm Joy Powers. If you missed any of today's conversations, or if you'd like to take Lake Effect on the go, download our podcast. Search for Lake Effect wherever you get your podcasts to listen to all of our shows on demand. Tomorrow on Lake Effect, we'll learn about the impact road salt has on our community's waterways. Plus, we'll learn about the restoration and installation of a historic pipe organ at the Oriental Theater in Milwaukee. That's all tomorrow at noon, right here on Lake Effect. 
on listener-supported 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR.